open to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, specifically chapter 9 verse 30 through chapter 10 verse 13 as our text as we continue to work our way through the book of Romans. And if you picked up a red Bible, Romans chapter 9 verse 30 is on page 946. Page 946. I want to ask you one more time if you're able, if you would stand so that we might honor once more the reading of God's holy word. Romans chapter 9 verse 30 through chapter 10, verse 13. Hear the reading of God's word. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it's written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in me will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says... Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's remain standing as we pray. Father, I just want to echo what my brother prayed. Lord, I I pray that you would use this work to move us forward, empowered by the Spirit of God, to fulfill and be about the mission that you've given us as a church. May you work powerfully, even through the preaching of your word this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Do you remember earlier in the book of Romans... Uh, Specifically, chapter 6, verse 1, Paul writes, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, he quickly answered, by no means. What What a foolish thought, right? But the fact that Paul asks the question, no doubt knowing that that question could be our mind, it shows us, I think, a tendency that we all can have. And that tendency is to take biblical 
doctrine, biblical truths, and apply them in unbiblical ways. Now, why we do that, I'm not sure. Maybe it's just the same answer as why we do any sin. Sin is utterly irrational, but we still do it. One of the things I think we do that can contribute to it is sometimes when we think about truth and we think about doctrine, I think we find ourselves sometimes thinking that my main goal is simply learning what is true. So that if I were to have a a test, a true or false test, or a fill-in-the-blank test, or something like this, a systematic theology test, I could write down what is true. And we don't always take the further step of thinking, how does the Bible tell me I am to apply this truth? Maybe that's what's going on, but nonetheless, Paul knew that this truth, that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, that truth could be used by us in biblical ways. And so what he does is he just stops us right in our path. Hey, if you're going to dare apply that to think that you can just sin and sin and sin so that grace will abound, that's not the way to apply this truth. Well, I think Paul's doing something similar in our text this morning, Romans chapter 9, verse 30 through chapter 10, verse 13. And the reason I think that is because after spending paragraph after paragraph after paragraph, noting that God sovereignly chooses and calls individuals to belong to himself, he raises a question in this chapter, Asking the same question that he had asked previously, and what he does is he answers the question in a totally different way. An equally true way, but a totally different way. And I think it's because right at the point that Paul knows we could take the truth, the biblical truth, that God sovereignly chooses individuals, that God sovereignly calls individuals to belong to him, Paul knows that we could take that biblical truth and begin to apply it in unbiblical ways. We could begin, because this is our tendency, right? As, as people who know sin well, we begin to say something like this. Well, if God's really sovereign, if he's really in control of all things, and he's simply sovereignly choosing which individuals belong to him, sovereignly calling which individuals will be his, then, well, maybe we should apply that by saying we're not really responsible creatures. We don't bear any responsibility. Maybe we could apply that by saying, well, we shouldn't even waste our time praying, for people to be saved. So what does Paul do? In Romans chapter 9, verse 30, he raises that same question. Now remember the question. At the end of uh, our section last week we looked at, Paul had pointed out, interestingly, in the history of the world, in the history of redemption, God had revealed himself first to the Israelites, but when the Messiah actually came, there were a great number of Gentiles who believed and a smaller number, a remnant of Israelites who believed. And so Paul asked the question, why? Why this great number of Gentiles? Why this small group of Israelites? And his answer was, because that's what God sovereignly determined. That's what he promised. He said through Hosea, not my people, they're going to be my people. Those who had not received mercy, they're going to receive mercy. That is, he's going to bring a bunch of Gentiles to faith. And then he quotes Isaiah in regard to Israelites. Though the Israelites be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. He brings up that same question this week, and he answers it not by pointing to God's sovereignty, though he, that's true, he already has done that, but by pointing to human responsibility. 
interestingly, in this same text. So if you're going to dare say, I'm going to use God's sovereignty to, to lessen man's responsibility in any way, Paul says, not so fast. If you're going to dare say, well, then if God sovereignly chooses and calls, then I'm not even going to spend my time praying for individuals. Then you're going to find, interestingly, that in Paul's answer to this question this morning, in chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul is not an individual who takes God's sovereignty and lessens man's responsibility or takes God's sovereignty and in any way removes our need to pray. So again, as I said earlier, if we have any tendency to head that way, it's as if Paul just parachutes down into our path right there and says, stop right here, go no further. So with that then in our mind, how does specifically Paul answer this question then? It, although he answers it differently in an equally true way, how does he answer this question, why the great number of Gentiles believing and why did only a small number, why were a great number of Israelites not believing? Why are a great number of Israelites not saved? And again, he answers by looking at their responsibility in each case. So what I want to do this morning then is I want to take that question, which just has two parts, right? Why did so many Israelites not believe? Why did so many Gentiles believe? In fact, let me just go ahead and just show you the question. Chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, have attained it. That is, a righteousness by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Verse 32. That's Paul's question. Why? And what he does is he answers it by first answering, why did so many Israelites not end up getting, attaining righteousness? Second question, why did so many Gentiles attain righteousness? The first question then he answers in verse 32 of chapter 9 all the way through verse 8 of chapter 10. Now, the hard thing in preaching this text is that Paul kind of rolls back around to these thoughts again and again. So I'm going I'm to kind of be scattered and pointing you back to the text. But we're going to work through chapter 9, 32 through chapter 10, verse 8 to answer the first question. And then chapter 10, verse 9 through chapter 10, verse 13 answer the second question. So first question, why Israel is it that so many Israelites did not attain righteousness? Point one, because they thought righteousness was based on their own works. Because they thought righteousness was based on their own works. That's Paul's answer to the first question. You want to know why so many Israelites did not ultimately attain the righteousness of God? So many Israelites weren't justified. Paul's answer because they thought righteousness was based on their own works. He says it very simply there in verse 32. Why? That's Paul's question. Answer. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So when the Israelites, when the Jews were exposed to the Old Testament, and they heard the Old Testament law read to them, or they read the Old Testament law, one of the things that they saw in the Old Testament law is that the law held up life dependent on obedience. In fact, just skip down a little bit. Paul confirms this in chapter 10, verse 5. Here's what he writes in chapter 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So there was a sense in which the law holds up 
this theoretical possibility that if you do the commandments, you shall live by them. That is to say, if you exercise perfect, complete obedience to the law at every point, you could theoretically earn eternal life. What then did so many Israelites do? Was they read the law and saw this this call to obedience, saw this expectation of absolute perfect obedience to attain eternal life, they sought to do that, to merit righteousness on the basis of their own works. Look at chapter 10, verse 3. This is exactly what Paul says of them. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and, note this phrase, seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So, so many Israelites then, here's the way that they were going about trying to pursue righteousness, trying to merit righteousness, is they were setting out saying, I will simply obey the law. I will simply obey God's commands at every point. Here's the problem. Since Genesis 3, after the fall, it is impossible for any human being to do that. It is impossible for any fallen human being to perfectly obey God's law. And the Israelites, the Jews, should have seen this over and over again at every step. I mean, all they had to do was look at any one area and notice that they had broken the law at any one point and know I have to give up on this pursuit. I mean, think about it. Of all the commandments, you could keep all of them, theoretically, for years. And then in one moment... Break one law at one point, and you're a lawbreaker. All they had to do was stop and say, have I ever coveted? Have I really loved the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Have I really loved my neighbor as myself? Have I really honored my father and my mother without exception? And what they should have very clearly seen is, This is not a path where I can succeed. I cannot establish righteousness on my own. So what was the problem then? The fact that they couldn't establish his righteousness, what was at the heart of it? Was the heart of their issue that they just weren't zealous enough? That they they just didn't try hard enough? If they just could have mustered up a little more strength, maybe they could have done it? No, no, no. Paul makes clear problem wasn't their zeal. Look at chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Their problem wasn't lack of zeal. They had plenty of zeal. Think about the text that we read or that that you heard read earlier. As Shannon read for us from Philippians chapter 3. Paul talks about his own life because he himself was a picture of this. He was seeking righteousness on his own, trying to earn righteousness on the basis of his own merits. And so he's just pointing out saying, look, you who are trying to do this, I tried to do it. If you say I did a pretty good job, Paul says, listen, I did a better job. I was doing unbelievable. In fact, you want to know how zealous I was? I was so zealous that I persecuted the church of God. In other words, what Paul's saying is this. I was so bent toward keeping the law at every point that when a group came along touting Jesus as the Messiah, 
and I did not think he was the Messiah, I found that to be so offensive to the teaching of the Bible, because Jesus, Paul didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah yet, that I said, not only am I not going to let this untruth stand and be heralded, but I'm going to go after those people. I'm going to persecute those. That's how zealous Paul was for the law. So the problem wasn't that the Jews lacked zeal. Paul said they were zealous, according to verse 2, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So what knowledge did they lack? What should they have seen? Here's key, the key. The point of the law, when the law holds up even the promise of life on the basis of our obedience, the purpose of the law doing that was not so that it might entice us to try to pursue righteousness on the basis of our own works. The point of the law holding up life on the basis of perfect righteousness is to show us that we could not do it. The purpose of the law doing that was to show us that we're sinners, was to show us that we're condemned, was to show us that we're worthy of death and we are helpless and hopeless if we look at ourselves. The New Testament speaks of the Old Testament as having a ministry of death, a ministry of condemnation. So the ministry of the Old Testament, the the goal, the good that it was doing for us was saying to us, look, you can't do it. You deserve to die. Look, you can't do it. You are condemned before God. Now, here's what's key. At the same time then that the Old Testament is showing us you can't do enough, you can't obey enough, you can't be good enough, at the same time the Old Testament was also pointing us to the answer. And the answer was Jesus Christ. The Old Testament law and holding up this call to perfect obedience was always meant to put us in a place where we would say, I can't do it, I need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus. Paul says this is the knowledge they lack. This is the very point at which they miss it. Now let's go back up then to verse 32. Why? Why did Israelites, why did the Jews not attain this righteousness? Paul says, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What Paul is saying is that the whole Old Testament, at every point, God was holding up in front of the people their Savior, Jesus the Christ. As the Old Testament continually pointed to him, the Old Testament was saying, this is the answer. And that's the very point at which the Israelites failed. That's the very point at which they refused to submit to God's righteousness. Now, think about this for a second. I think we all love the idea, and it is exciting to read the Old Testament and note throughout the Old Testament how many ways the Old Testament prophesies and points to Jesus. I mean, I remember just the first time I realized, just had this reality, reading the Old Testament just became an utter lie to me. I mean, to just start your Bible. We could go on with numerous examples of this. Just think for a little bit. In Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve fall, 
already God is promising Jesus to come, isn't he? The seed of the woman will come and he will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent will strike his heel, but he will crush his head. Again, a promise of Jesus coming and living and dying and being raised. Or you get to the end of Genesis. And Jacob's blessing his sons, and he says of Judah, there's going to be one who's going to come from him, who, who will uh, be like a lion holding a scepter, reigning as king. Again, another promise to Jesus. Or think about in the uh, book of Exodus, as they begin to talk about the, the establishment of the temple, the building of the temple, the place that would be the very presence of God. Pointing to the fact that Jesus one day would call his own body the temple. Why? Because he is the very dwelling of God in our midst. He is God with us. Now, you and I both know we could spend the rest of the day walking through the Old Testament showing all of these things that point us to Jesus. But here's what I want you to see. As exciting as that is and as fun as that is, God did not insert every one of those pointers to his son, just so that we would say, isn't this cool? But he point, put in every one of those pointers to his son so that we might understand Jesus is the answer to righteousness. So as you read the law and you read, good grief, it is commanding me to be perfectly righteous that I might live. I don't have hope. On that same page, you can probably read and say, here's a pointer to Jesus. In other words, the Old Testament was saying, here is the answer. This is the goal. This is why Jesus could say in John 5, 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote of me. And this is Paul's point then in chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They failed at the very point of attaining God's righteousness. Why? What did they miss? Verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What Paul said is that the Jews simply show us the human heart apart from the grace of God. The human heart in our fallen sinful condition, apart from God's intervening grace, would rather try to base and establish our righteousness on our own good works, knowing and seeing every day that we would fail in that path, rather than just recognizing, I can't do it, and I'm going to submit to God's righteousness. And God's righteousness is found not in me doing enough, but in realizing that Jesus Christ is the answer to the promise of righteousness. He came. He did obey the law at every point. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to pay for my sins, my failures. He was raised from the dead on the third day so that if I place my faith in him, he will credit me with righteousness. This is the answer. Christ is the end of the law. And note what is so sad is because the human condition would rather rely on ourselves instead of submitting to God's righteousness, we actually miss what is this glorious blessing, this gift of grace, because God's righteousness to us, as opposed to relying on our own works, comes to us in the form of a gift. This is what Paul notes, I think, in chapter 10, verses 6 through 8. Here's what happens. After Paul notes in verse 5, Moses writes about a law that's a righteousness based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. 
Paul's saying, but again, this promise of life was always pointing us to our need for Christ. And then, in verses 6 through 8, he says something that can be very, a little confusing. He draws from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 through 14, and here's what he writes. Chapter 10, verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. What's Paul doing there? Well, first, let's think back to Deuteronomy 30, 12 through 14, in its original context. Here's the context. Here's what's going on. God has given the people the law. He's given them his commands. And so basically he's saying, you have no excuse not to obey these commands. You don't have to say... I don't know what God wants me to do. I, I guess I need to ascend into the heavens and, and figure out and grab whatever it is that God wants me to do. Or, or maybe I need to go into the sea, into the abyss, and, and get God's commandments there and figure out what He wants me to do. God says, no, 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 no. You don't have to do that. I've made it clear. I've given you my law. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart right there. You have no excuse right there it is to obey. But notice what Paul does. Paul, understanding that the law itself was always pointing us to Christ as the answer. That Jesus Christ is the end or the goal of the law. He says, I'll tell you what, you can insert here Christ. That is to say, if you're going to say, I need to do some amazing thing to merit righteousness, what, what has to happen? Does Jesus have to live and die and be raised for me? Then, then, then I'll, I'll ascend into the heavens and bring him down if I have to. I, I will descend into the earth and, and raise him up from the dead if I have to, because I want righteousness. And Paul's saying, no, 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 stop it, stop it. You don't have to ascend into the heavens to bring Christ down. You don't have to descend into the abyss to try to bring him back from the dead. He's already done it for you. It's, it's right there. God has accomplished. That's why when we think of righteousness based on works as opposed to righteousness based on faith, we often talk about it in terms of doing versus done. And this is Paul's point. God is not saying, I want you to do and do and do more to earn righteousness. What he's saying is, I want you to stop doing and realize it's been done. Realize it's been accomplished for you. I did it for you. Quit working so hard, trying to ascend into the heavens, trying to descend into the earth, and recognize that I've given you my son. Everything that the law says must be done to merit righteousness, he's done it for you. And I offer him to you. That's the very point where the Jews missed it. They refused to submit to God's righteousness, refused to recognize Jesus as the answer, refused to bow the knee to him in faith, and consequently, they did not attain righteousness. That's Paul's answer to his question. Why did they not attain righteousness? Because they thought it was based on their own works instead of simply faith in the finished work of Christ for us. Now, it's worth us this morning, I think, pausing for a second and just evaluating our own lives. Because have you ever noticed how easy it is to see bad things in other people instead of yourself. You could be the most arrogant person on the planet standing on the side of the road going, good grief, that guy's arrogant. 
right? It's just so easy to see those things. And perhaps that's what we're doing this morning. We're reading this text going, silly Israelites, good grief. Thinking that, that they had to do and work and be enough and that somehow that's how they were righteous before God. Let's just pause. Maybe have one of those moments. You remember when Nathan tells that story to David about the man that takes the sheep and David is out, you know, raged about the situation. That man deserves to die. And Nathan says, you're the man. Maybe we need to have a, you're the man, I'm the man kind of moment. Because I want to say it this way. You know every time that you think, you know what? I'm just going to sit before the Lord for a few moments in prayer. And the thought enters your mind. But I'm not sure he wants anything to do with me. Because I don't know if I've done enough good. Or when somebody mentions how much the Lord loves you and delights in you, or Zephaniah 3.17, the fact that he sings over you, and the thought enters your mind, well, I'm not sure that he delights in me that much because I don't know if I've been holy enough. Do you realize you're doing the exact same thing we just read the unbelieving Jews did? You're thinking that your righteousness is based on your own works. It's not. So what you can do is go, you know what? I'm going to go sit before the Lord this morning. And I'm going to know not only does he want me to sit with him in prayer, but he's actually going to enjoy me. Why? Because Jesus Christ has done everything necessary for me to be in a perfect status before God. He sees me credited with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. My wife will often mock me because... Um, well, for a number of reasons. I give her plenty of ammunition there. But um, one of the reasons she mocks me is because I so m- many times do these things. She, he talk, she talks about just taking the obvious menial things, and I'm just amazed by them. So, you know, good grief, Lily. I went to the sink and turned it on, and water came out. Can you believe that? You know, that kind of, that kind of thing. And, and so um, she's always mocking me. But the other morning I came, and I had one of those moments, and she didn't mock me. And so I'm going to share that one with you. Uh, <laughs> I'm the hero in this story, you know, so, uh, uh, right, that's rare. Um, so I had, I had just been um, sitting and praying and, and really just moved by this truth, meditating on this text, that God enjoys me and I get to enjoy him. And, and so I went, I went to Lily in the kitchen and I said, uh, you know, the guys who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster Catechism, I always refer to those guys as, they're like theological lawyers, you know, it's just unbelievable. So well written. You're, I mean, you know the first question, right? What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I said to Lily, I'm so thankful that these men who are like theological lawyers, whose brains work so high on the level of intelligence, recognized that the chief end of my life is to glorify God and enjoy Him. And to enjoy God. And I think this is true. There may be many others. I may be overstating it. I, I don't know that I am. I'm going to go ahead and say it strongly. The main weapon that the devil may use to keep you and me from enjoying God is convincing us that His pleasure with us is based on our own works. And the reason that's a huge problem 
is because if you don't enjoy God knowing that he enjoys you, you will not live a life of radical obedience to him. Because radical obedience stems from enjoying God. Radical obedience that is based off trying to earn enough to throw off condemnation is good just for a little bit. But lifelong radical obedience is dependent on you knowing I enjoy God and he enjoys me. So I, I think that this answer about Israel's unbelief isn't some foreign concept to us, right? It's something we wrestle with. And so let's, as we see this, let's just hide this in our own hearts as well. Why did Israel not attain the righteousness? Because they thought righteousness was based on the works. Okay, this answer the second part of the question then. Why is it then that a great number of Gentiles did attain righteousness? Answer, because everyone who believes in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That's the answer, because everyone who believes in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. In other words, Paul's quick answer to, why did Gentiles attain righteousness then, Paul? His answer, because they believed. And anyone who believes is saved. Right? This is what Paul says in verse 9, after, after showing in verses 6 through 8 how easy this is. God has done for us. You don't have to ascend into the heavens or descend into the abyss. God has done for us what we need because he gave us Christ. He then says in verse 9, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, I know that the devil has done so much work in our hearts that it's hard for us to get what Paul's saying here, but Paul's point is to say, this is simple. That's Paul's point. You don't have to descend into the heavens. You don't have to descend into the earth. Just believe. Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart. Know that God has sent the Lord Jesus Christ to live and die and be raised from the dead, confess him as your Lord, and you'll be saved. It's that simple. Not only is it that simple, but that message is universally available. That's Paul's point in verses 11 through 13. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see what Paul's doing when he, when he says, everyone who believes. For there's no distinction, Jew and Greek. All, all, verse 13, everyone. He's just making the point... The reason a bunch of Gentiles were saved and have been saved and are being saved in the history of the world is because God has not made it his mission to exclude but to call people by saying if anyone believes they can be saved. I want to say this to you. You can go say to every single person on the planet if you will place your faith in Jesus Christ who lived and died and was raised, you can be saved. And by telling them that, you're telling them not only what is true, but what we're reading here in the Bible this morning. Righteousness is not only simple to attain, simply faith in the crucified and risen Lord, but it's universally available. This message must be proclaimed. And I want to say something really obvious. 
when Paul in verse 13 quotes Joel 2.32, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, the obvious point I want to make about that is that Paul's referencing the Old Testament. In other words, Paul didn't just come up with, after his conversion, I'm going to figure out a way to argue that the Gentiles can also be included among God's people. That way I can be an apostle to the Gentiles. No, 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 no. Paul's just preaching what the Old Testament says. In Joel, Joel was saying, everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, what then do we do with that? And when we try to apply Paul's answer to the first point to ourselves, let's try to apply this one as well. What do we do with the fact that the Bible teaches us that we can be saved simply through faith and that that proclamation of the message that anyone can be saved if they will just believe, calling on the name of the Lord, they can be saved. What do you do with that? And I think the answer is simple. We preach the gospel indiscriminately. We take the gospel to the ends of the earth, telling everyone who will listen to us, if you will believe in the crucified and risen Lord, trusting in Him, not in your own works for your salvation, you can be saved. Let me say it this way for us at Cornerstone Community Church. Here's what I want for us as we seek to apply this second truth. Everyone who believes in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Here's what I want for us. I want us to have a vision of making disciples of our neighbors and making disciples of the nations. In other words, I want us as individuals to go and speak to our neighbors, the people we live around or the people we work with, and I want us to preach to them this message that God has done what we could not do for ourselves by sending a son to live and die and be raised so that if we believe in him, we can be saved. I want us to take that message to our neighbors, to our co-workers, and here's what I want. I want us, right here in Jackson, to be about making disciples, preaching the gospel to those people, and then think about the Great Commission, and then bringing them in and having them profess their faith publicly in baptism, and then in a context now where they've been joined to a local church where they have oversight and love and care and accountability and guidance, in that context then, I want us to teach them to obey everything that Christ has commanded. So that's us as a church. That's what we're doing right here. And I then want us to be sending out people all over the earth planting churches all over North America and all across the globe where we can do that same thing again and again and again. In other words, this text, even as Paul prayed, or as Tom prayed before I got up here, is exactly in line with our vision for our church. I want us to reach Jackson, Tennessee, bring them in, and be making disciples right here. And... I want us to be sending out disciples, disciples and teams of disciples to plant churches all over the world so that that same great commission can be carried out everywhere. One of the ways we say that is that what we're doing here and what we're doing in the rest of the world are not divorced from one another, but they're one and the same. In other words, let me say it this way. What we want right here in Jackson Cornerstone Community Church right here is we want our church to be not only a disciple-making community, 
but we want our church to be a base. Even as Paul, Tom, I called Tom Paul twice. I exalt my brother. Um, <laughs> I want us not only to be a disciple-making church community right here, but to think of us as a base. Remember Tom prayed, let's be like Antioch. Here, I'm going to use a lot of descriptors. I could use more. Here are some. Here's what I want us to be. Right here in Jackson, let's have a stable, solid, growing, sacrificially giving support base for the sake of planting churches everywhere. So it's here and everywhere. So as we said before, when we do things like repair the roof or pave the parking lot, that's not somehow distracting us from missions. That's because we want this place to be not only a disciple-making community, but a support base to send out others. Solid, stable, growing, sacrificially, sacrificially giving support base for the rest of the world. So how do we apply this truth that everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved? We make disciples here and to the ends of the earth. And so what I want us to do then this morning as we come to the table is the, the glorious thing about communion is the Lord gave us two ordinances, didn't he? Baptism, Lord's Supper, and both of them basically do the same kind of root thing. What they do is they show, they visibly demonstrate that we have heard God's word, and by faith we say yes and amen. So you hear the gospel, and then you're baptized, and you visibly proclaim, I've heard God's word, and by faith I say yes and amen to the call of the gospel. One of the things we get to do every week in communion is say we've heard God's word and by faith our answer is yes and amen. And so this morning we're going to take a moment of silence and then we're going to distribute the bread and distribute the cup and then we're going to eat the bread all together, drink from the cup all together. And as we do that, I want that to be a corporate proclamation. Lord, we've heard your declaration this morning. We're justified by faith in the crucified and risen Lord alone. And everyone who calls the name of the Lord can be saved. Therefore, we're going to take the gospel, make the disciples here and everywhere. We've heard your call, and by faith our answer is yes and amen. We'll now visibly demonstrate that by eating and by drinking. So if you're not a believer this morning, I'm going to plead with you to place your faith in Christ. If you would love to talk to me or somebody else out of the service, we would love to talk to you. I would plead with you to place your faith in Christ today. If you are a believer, you've professed your faith in Christ then after this moment of silence, would you eat with us and drink with us? Let's take a moment of silence now as the ushers and musicians get in place.